0: gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I'm your host, Paul J. Long, and I am super excited about our guest today. Now, if you know me, you've been tuning in, you know my energy, you know that generally I'm just an excitable person, but uh, every now and again, the universe will reveal a path to you. And these names, these individuals, these things, they just keep popping up in your life. And uh, the young lady that I get the opportunity to interview today with you in attendance uh, is making waves in Kansas City. Uh, But before I introduce her in all her glory, I'd like to shout out our sponsor, who is also making waves in the Kansas City metro area. Charlie Hustle has been with us from the jump. Uh, They have an amazing charitable campaign right now called 1K for KC, in which they have effectively raised over $200,000 for impoverished families to help with rent through these trying times. So if you want to learn more about what Charlie Hustle is doing, or you just want to find their fresh duds and see how amazing you look in their slim fitting shirts, they actually fit to average individuals like myself. But nevertheless, go to charliehustle.com and find what suits you. Now, without further ado, uh, like I said, I'm super excited. Uh, I got a text message recently from a gentleman that I admire a great deal, a former Fundamism podcast guest, uh, Community America uh, phenomenon, Mr. Matt Johnson. And he said, if Dr. Kimberly Beatty isn't on your radar, is an individual that you need to meet and have on your podcast, you're doing life wrong. So ladies and gentlemen, the eighth ever chancellor of Metropolitan Community College and the first ever African-American over in over 103 years, their history, the first ever African-American leader, Miss Dr. Kimberly Beatty, what's good?
1: I'm all good, how about you? I love that energy.
0: Well, I know you're trying to dial it down on this Friday in which we're recording, so I don't know if this is too much to carry you into your weekend or not.
1: No, it's just what I need. Pump, pump, (laughs) pump it up. That's, That's just
0: what I need. Well, listen... Uh, you're an individual that obviously finds strength in life and the interactions of others and making sure that we are consistently improving ourselves, or you wouldn't be in higher education. So before we get down too too far in the path of what makes you the amazingness that you are, what do you do for fun?
1: Well, this is probably going to sound really boring, but um what i do for well no I, I what i do for fun is i do line dancing what how is that sound boring oh, yeah. <laughs> well i was going to tell you my other fun thing which is gardening okay. but uh, <laughs> uh but line dancing and karaoke that's what i do for fun i just don't do karaoke where i live uh, why is that cuz the cell phones okay.
0: All right. So, follow-up question: The fate of the world depends on you. We're in the midst of this uh, international pandemic, social divisiveness, uh, political landscape that's unlike anything that we've seen before in our lifetime. Uh, A lot of heartache and anxiety. The fate of the world depends on you in smashing your favorite karaoke song. What's it going to be?
1: You better call Tyrone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You and I are
0: like this. You don't even know it. Uh, uh, What what do you think about
1: Miss Tina Turner? Oh, those legs. I just wish I had them. Mm. I want to be her when I grow up. My goodness. We all love it. She's got a good song I've done too with my girlfriend. Um, Big wheels keep on turning. Ooh, that's the Which, jam right there. Proud Mary.
0: I couldn't remember uh, the name yeah, of that's it. That's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, we turn it up here on. Uh-oh. There you go. Uh-oh. No. <laughs> I'm going to tell y'all a story. <laughs> listen, you know the power of music. Like the power of music is like, it's it's a great connection. It's the great connector. Like, some of some of our podcast listeners have, have heard me tell the story of uh, Tina Turner, what she means to me and specifically my mother. But uh, Dr. Kimberly, I was uh, driving down the street in Austin, Texas, uh, a state that you are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm in this rental car and you, you've ever been driving down the street and that, that song hits you like just mm-hmm. right. you lose yourself in it, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was this Tina Turner song, what love, What's Love Got to Do With It? And mm. I mean, that chorus hits and I'm just, whoa, mm. what's love got to do with it, right? Mm, mm, mm. And then you pull up to a stoplight. And you just feel people gawking at you, and it's like it's like don't sing your karaoke song in the neighborhood in which you live, cause <laughs> you know what I'm saying. And so I pull up to a stoplight. I feel somebody gawking at me. Longest light of all time. I'm like, I'm not looking over there. I know that they're judging me. I finally work up the courage to uh, to look over there, and I see this young woman in the driver's side. She goes like this. She she makes it. <laughs> arm gesture like in a circular motion and I don't know what this means I'm like I have I have no idea what what she's doing some people often tell me well she's trying to tell you to roll down the window like I'm driving a 96 Ford Fiesta and uh, I'm like ma'am I think you mean this like roll down so I roll down my window and just as the chorus comes on you know what she did Dr. Beatty what She said, whoa, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) You have two individuals, completely different demographics, completely different states, completely different genders, and all of a sudden we're bonding over the power of music because Mm -hmm. we don't give a crap what everybody else is thinking about in that moment. So Mm -hmm. that's why I found it so important to invite you on the podcast because uh, you've only been in Kansas City uh, since 2017, based on my Mm -hmm. understanding, so hold me accountable. Uh, uh, prior to that, you were in Houston, Texas, doing mm-hmm. the, the dang thing, mm-hmm. and uh, and you've made you've made quite the the, the wake um, of just of just leadership and and bringing connection and uh, and and provoking thought, provoking real thought that is necessary in a time right now where we're so caught up in our own narrative and our own opinion that some people were struggling to see common sense and the factual side of things. So. How did, how did you get here? Talk to us a little bit about your journey in higher education and what led you down that path.
1: Well, uh, it's quite the journey because while I look like I'm only 25, I've been doing this for 32 years, believe it or not. Whoa. And um, pretty fairly traditional path, one would consider traditional in that I started out teaching. I started out um teaching in four year, I taught in a prison. And then I taught English. Uh, when I moved to California from the East Coast, I taught English at the community college. And that's when I fell in love with the community college mission. Um, and I think that's what has really been at the core of driving me and what I do and how much I, um, and how I've, you know, strive to be where I am in this seat to have the impact that I could potentially have is because of that, a community college mission. So I started uh, teaching at Cypress college in California as an English faculty member and uh, said, you know, what if I was in an administrative role where I could have broader impact? So then I became a Dean at uh, Tidewater Community College in Virginia. And then I said, what if I was in an even bigger role where I could have broader impact?" And I had the opportunity to, what we would say, jump to the other side of the house on the student services side of the house at Tarrant County College in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, liked that, enjoyed it. And uh, then what if I could really have impact across a huge institution, and um, uh, in instruction and ensure and design curriculum and make sure that we're serving the underserved and meeting their needs from a curriculum standpoint? And that's how I uh, ended up in Houston at Houston Community College, and I, quite frankly, was real good in Houston and. Happy, meaning, uh, you know, and settled, and had no intention on going anywhere anytime soon. And this opportunity, just you know, I was called out of the blue by a uh, search firm, and then began to think, what if I had the ability to transform, be, be, you know, serve as a linchpin in a city. Um, And and once my husband and I came here, we drank the (laughs) Kool-Aid. Kansas City, I got to tell you, when they called me, I was like, I am not going to Kansas City. But when we got here and the people are just so kind and the city is really a great city with a lot of potential. And I saw a lot of things, uh, a lot of opportunity that uh, where I could, you know, bring things together. And I'm really happy that that vision is starting to, you know, I'm in my fourth year and things are really starting to come together. The things that I saw when I first uh, came here and the opportunities that we had uh, as an institution to impact the community, I'm really beginning to see that come to fruition.
0: Well, and you're not the only one. I think the individuals with whom you've had the opportunity to work would say the same uh, I had mentioned that we have several mutual friends. I mentioned uh, Matt Johnson, who serves on the, uh, the charitable board, I believe, the foundation board, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And a, a previous uh, podcast guest, Dr. Jermaine Reed. I think he's mm-hmm. on your board of trustees. Yeah. yeah uh, and then of course, yeah. Joel Goldberg, you were on the rounding yeah. the bases. So yeah. uh, a, lot of, a lot of mutual ties who all think very, very highly of you. And oh. I could tell in the first five minutes why. I mean, oh. so let me get specific with you. This, this profound question that you ask uh, as, you're, as, you're, as you're chilling, like you're you're good, like you said, mm-hmm. I, I'm good, right? Mm-hmm. But this question that just continues to creep up in your life, what if I could? What if I could mm-hmm. have an impact? What if I could help transform? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if I could be the linchpin? Where mm-hmm. did this question come to you from? Like, Is this something that you've always had in you uh, or is it something that came to you with a uh, with this fine age that you referenced earlier?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I say I, but it really is, I think everything that that, that question is really rooted in the mission that undergirds uh, the community college. And because I am so um, committed to that mission of access and equity and education for all, that it's it, that's what drives me or has driven me to ask the question about that greater impact that in that seat through the vehicle of the community college mission, that, you know, that impact that we could have. So I think it's just that passion and um, connection to that, uh, to that mission.
0: Mm.
1: I now, you know, many people will ask, I'll admit, I didn't go to a community college. I went to an HBCU. I'm a three-time graduate from Morgan State University. Wow. Um, but in a lot of ways, the HBCU and the community college are very similar because they are grounded in ensuring that there's access to higher education for all. And so I, you know, didn't grow I grew up in a single, I have often told this story. There's a um YouTube video that I have shown. Uh, before it is called um well I googled I'm gonna it. find it It's something to video I'm sorry, I
0: said I googled it. I googled your name because because uh-huh. you're kind of a big deal oh, and, that, stop it. and that video popped up, so I know what you're referencing,
1: yeah, and he uses these Legos to determine you know, poverty in America and so forth. And one of the things I showed that video and at the end of the video, I said, you know, what's different between me and what he talks about in that video? I was black. I was not, you know, I was poor. Did, came from meager be- beginnings, raised by a single parent. The only reason I am here today, I am convinced is because of education. Mm. Those are the four things that in this video they they point out that keeps America from reaching prosperity, especially and they those those that uh, fall into that category tend to be in minority populations and so forth. And so when you think about that power that you have as an educator, I mean, this is what I would tell my faculty when I was in Houston: is when you think about that power that you have as a faculty member in your hand that you have the opportunity to transform lives because you may be the only thing, this may be the only element that prevents a family from generational despair.
0: Mm. Generational despair.
1: Generational. So I wrote, you know, my mother went to college, was not the first in our family uh, to go to college. They all, her and her uh, first cousin's all were kind of grouped together in the same, uh, same era. But my mother was, I was 10 or something like that. I would drive the, ride the bus with her two or three buses to go to school with her. And she did it. I mean, she stuck that persistence. I was glad I still remember to this day sitting in the back of the classroom while she was in class and, you know, being able to see that and having that as a model, um, we she was raised by her grandmother, and I'm not sure if it was uh just what inspired uh what inspired her, whether it was our grandmother or my great grandmother or just something within her. Mm. But that could have been a break right there. You know, that could have that was an op that was a breakthrough moment. Right. Right. That was a breakthrough moment and education did that. And so I I really, as you can see, get jazzed up about what the power of education can do to transform lives and families and change the, the path of generations and, uh, you know, making a difference. And that there, there's a lot of power in that. They're doing it at the universities. I'm, just, I'm not discounting that. But universities have admissions criteria. That don't always provide the equitable access to everybody.
0: Right. So yes. Well, you so so much there to, to really kind of narrow down in on. So uh, first of all, it's easy to get jazzed when you're living in Kansas City, am I right? Up top. That's, right.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's uh, right, uh, that's <laughs> right.
0: Listen, we got that too. Oh, oh. Uh, so. Uh, forgive my ignorance, that was not the YouTube uh, video that I thought you were referencing, Uh, so I did not see the video that you're referencing. However, I do want to uh, get back to those four items that you listed. What were they again? Uh, Education
1: being one of the four, right? Uh, Yeah, it was uh, education, it was race, uh, it was parents graduating from high school, parents graduating from high school, Poverty. uh, socioeconomic level, Graduating high school, social economic level, uh, race, and whether or not your parents were married or not. Mm. Yeah, and those were the anchors um, in this uh, in this video. Sure. Now, and he used it's really cool because he used Legos to kind of make the point. It was it was a great display.
0: As a parent of a four and seven year old, you're speaking my language.
1: <laughs> so,
0: so you bring up a topic uh, that is obviously super sensitive right now and always has been, to be honest, uh, but race. And I got to tell you, um, I, I read your bio and, mm-hmm. I, and I even recited it, you being uh, the first African American leader in the over 100 year history of uh, Metropolitan Community Colleges. And I had to ask myself is she offended by that title? Would she be offended if I reference that? Because when I see somebody like you, I acknowledge all of your greatness. Like you are an amazing individual. And so I hate to title, uh, or, or say anything about what race you are, because I don't think that that defines you. What are your thoughts and how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, so I shared that I went to an uh, HBCU and I did that by choice. I was accepted to university of Maryland and Syracuse and could have gone to a lot of places. Um, I made the conscious decision to do that because I wanted to have that experience. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh and at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And at that time, the, um, the city was very, um, I didn't know it then. I know it now um, after the fact, but it was not, you know, I just didn't have the full cultural uh, experience. And so I made that that conscious decision. And when I was, one of the first things they teach you is that you're born at a disadvantage in this society and we're going to prepare you to be above and beyond the best. Mm. And so, you know, many people might think, you know, you go to HBCU and you get, um, Uh, a black education or you only, you know, you, you have those um, nuggets of, you know, Aristotle being trained by a black man and that Shakespeare was in love with a black woman, but you were trained on, you know, you were trained to be above and beyond the best. And so I kind of, as an individual, that is what drives me i want to be the best at what i am i don't uh i don't want to necessarily okay i got this job because of my race or i've i'm um defined by my race i think that i've been the first black in just about everything black person in just about every role that i've had mm. and I'm okay. I'm okay with that. But you're right. It doesn't necessarily being the first black. It's unfortunate, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, you know, that we're talking in 2017 and, and that that's the case. So no, it doesn't define me. I've, you know, it's not my first experience in being the, you know, ceiling breaker or the race breaker um, in a certain role or at an institution. Um, it's unfortunate that we're in that situation. And I'm glad to be, um, I, you know, in fact, honored in some cases to be the one that does that. But I don't, that does not define me. I want to be good at what I'm doing and excellent at what I'm doing and um, be the best at what I'm doing. And um, I think that's what has caused me to or led to me uh, being this um, race breaker in in a lot of cases. It's, it may be, yes, I am African-American and I'm very proud of that, um, but I'm also very good at what I do and I don't make any apologies uh, about that.
0: Mm, and you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I just wanna, I want to thank you for being open to that conversation because mm-hmm. I think that we could probably both agree that dialogue is helpful in just about anything. And people are, are, are so uncomfortable. Uh, healthy dialogue, when open to other uh, perspectives, <laughs> uh, can be beneficial in moving society and ourselves forward, right? Being uh-huh. exposed to different perspectives and worldviews and all that stuff can only help us all become better. So I appreciate you being open to that. And I love that, uh, that ceiling breaker title that you gave yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would argue that it's you're the ceiling breaker for much more than just being an African American leader. And so I'm guessing that there are so many people that look up to you based on what you've accomplished in your short tenure, although you believe it's, it's very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but comparatively to life, uh, in our mm-hmm. cycle, we got, we got lots left to accomplish. Yeah, um, yeah. but, Who was that ceiling breaker for you? Like when you think of individuals and you referenced your mother going to school and uh, you briefly touched on your grandmother as well, who did you look up to for individuals that helped kind of lay the foundation or set the benchmark for some of the things that you wanted to become or do in life?
1: Well, that um, you mentioned uh, two of them. Um, my the first president and my mentor to this day uh, that hired me, Dr. Christine McPhail, she has been a tremendous uh, mentor for me, and she also was a, a ceiling breaker uh, as well. You know, I'm looking for this video because it's driving me crazy. <laughs> um, You're good at multitasking, though. Know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she was one of uh, she was one of my mentors as well. But you know, I, uh, so I've had several over the years, uh, but most recently, you know, within the last 10 years, one person, one woman that I've looked up to, and if I were in my office, you would see her book behind me is Michelle Obama. Mm. When you want to talk about leading with grace, I mean, she just is the epitome of that to me. And um, just... I'll never forget, you know, when they go low, we go high statement. And she just um, she just really demonstrates and embodies all of the uh, class and what you have to put up with and how you respond to that. And then when she wrote a book and I saw her book tour, uh, I think it was on OWN, they did mm-hmm. a um, interview with her and just really getting inside of, getting to feel, uh, sitting at her feet in that way. Um, it was, it was really special to me and i just, my, my respect was already high. It just went through, through the charts. And so that, um, that's another person that I look up to. One of my favorite authors who I have, um, uh, learned a lot from and you know, if he was sitting here would say he's he's a mentor, but he doesn't know it because he's way up, you know, way up there in terms of um importance and so forth. And that would be uh John Maxwell, his well, yeah. on uh leadership. And I had the opportunity to see him once and that was another amazing experience because he just pulls up a chair. I mean it's there's like, you know, 10,000 people in this room mm. and I felt like he was only talking to me. Mm. I mean, he just was um, uh, another uh, but you know, I don't know what he's I've not seen him necessarily model leadership, but what he says about leadership, I use I use his uh, work a lot uh, in my leadership. So those, those are the folks, you know, like I said, in addition to my mother and uh, grandmother uh, those are uh, those are people that immediately come to mind. You touched on something uh, very near and dear to my heart,
0: uh, related to the development of skill. And so, when when talking about uh, Mr. Maxwell, mm-hmm. he, that I, I've never necessarily seen him model the behavior. Not that he doesn't. We just haven't seen mm-hmm. it. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he talks about it. He explains it very 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 well. Right. Mm-hmm. So every time I hear that or I think about uh, education. Uh, or leadership development, or, or any development of skill, uh, I'm always brought back to the five-step skills transfer process. That's very, very simple. It's explain, demonstrate, practice with coaching, observe, uh, them do the task, and then provide feedback, right? And so what you said was, this gentleman is great as his, at his explanation. Like it, it connects very, very well. It makes sense. And the individuals that typically thrive in the explain step of the skills transfer process are typically really, really good, Dr. Beatty, at asking Mm -hmm. questions and getting others to self-discover why it's important. See, rather than talking about it and telling people to go do something, they ask the questions. So what does it mean to you? Why would you do that? But then you said, you know, I haven't seen a model it. And this is like, a significant opportunity gap for many in uh, corporate America and I would argue education, the education okay. system as well, the demonstration step, right? Like you've told me uh, how to do it or, or, or what it looks like potentially, but I need to see, I need to see exactly what the expectation is. Why do you think so many people are hesitant to jump in and, and show or demonstrate exactly what a desired outcome may look like as a leader? Well, um or do you even believe that that's the case? I could be talking out of, out of turn. No,
1: no, no. As somebody that, um, you know, has supervised a lot of people, I would agree, you know, I've, I'm, I'm pausing. <laughs> one Because I want to be graceful in my response, but I, I am also trying to figure out the best way to articulate it. Cause I'm, I'm seeing, you know, Part of what we are dealing with, we, I've said that, you know, I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's, um, I I just, I can't, I can't explain it, but I think in the same way with families. So my husband was just telling me this morning that, um, you know, Denzel Washington, his son has a new movie out and he was being interviewed. Uh, by Samuel Jackson on Jimmy Kimmel when he was a guest. And uh, he apparently he and Denzel are really good friends. And uh, he said, hey, man, tell us what, you know, what are the family secrets or what are the rules, you know, like chores and so forth. And he said the one rule we had is that we always sat down and we ate dinner together. I was recently in a um, conversation with some folks and talking about family values and how they have changed over time. And I think some, you know, you—it's like these things—they just kind of like uh, welcome, uh, back to the future. They just start to disappear. You know, you know, having dinner together—that goes away. And each one of these things that go away, it creates a different. Um, how family structure and values therefore change. I think the same thing is happening in leadership. Mm. When some things aren't modeled or something just kind of starts to disappear, it starts to, you know, kind of. So when you have, and I'm not going to even say that I'm the expert, but the, you know, some of the things that I encounter from a leadership, I think it really comes down to execution for sure. You know, Stephen Covey has the group Covey group has a book out four disciplines of execution because a lot of people get into leadership, but they don't know how to get it done. They don't know how to execute. And I don't know if that's because these things over time have disappeared Or I I can't explain it, but I experience it and have experienced it uh, a lot. And um, I'm definitely one that wants to get things done. So I have no problem modeling that and, you know, empowering and uh, trying to coach people along to get to that point. Uh, But at some point, it has to be in you. Mm. You know, there's this conversation that has been going on for a very long time about whether uh, people, if leadership is a born trait or if it's one that can be learned. And I say it's, you know, it's a hybrid between the two. For sure. Because, yeah, you you can learn it, but it's got to be in you. You've got to have that... That grit, that desire, that you know to oh. move things—yeah, you, <laughs> you know—to just kind of move things forward. Yep. And um, if if you don't have that, it's it's going to be—and that doesn't mean you have to have an outgoing personality or anything, because some people are. I had somebody tell me one time, you know, sometimes it's good not to always be the first to speak. You know, mm. allow people to. Respond to the point where then they seek your opinion out because, yep. and then everybody's listening. I mean, it's not necessarily a, a forceful nature that I'm saying you have to have, but it, there's got to be something in you that says, I want to see this get done. I want to, I, I, you know, like I've said, what my, what drives me, you got to figure out what drives you and build upon that.
0: Ain't that the truth? So what I love about what you just said is something that we brought up in last week's podcast, uh, and you indirectly referenced it, but everything that we are experiencing right now has nothing to do with right now and everything to do with the events leading up. To yep. right now, yep. right? And yep. so when you talk about your family upbringing or the way that the values have changed or mm-hmm. How somebody showed you how they managed conflict—that's that's that's where we learn, right? That's how that's we right. grow is in experience. And so, I agree with you in the fact that uh, maybe the the modeling, the behavior, is less a point of emphasis now because uh, because mainly you haven't experienced it in some time, or your values have changed, or we don't have the emphasis on it as much anymore. I would also take that one step further and say that uh, in my experience in corporate leadership, um, the further you climb the ladder, the less development you get. And so you get more and more removed from the development of your skills because you're hired based on your ability in role. And so people think that, and I want you to, I want you to respond, um, but, but you're hired based on your ability in role. And then they say, all right, you got them, tiger, go get them. Uh, And then, and then, they just trust that you do the damn thing. Excuse
1: my language. so what's your take on that? Well, it's even worse in higher education, so oh. I think you're right that people hire you based upon the position yes, that you've had that you oh. have maybe not what you got you've accomplished in that position okay. but there's the, there's an assumption <laughs> that happens that you know well. If she was chancellor, she has to be able to, or if they were vice president, they have to know uh, these things. And you know, I just onboarded three executives at um, at at the college, and I really this this has been. I mean, you touched on something for me that is really uh, <laughs> a, a a a point for me that you know, you have to onboard and develop people and you have to make that investment. Mm. So I think there's a responsibility on both. So I I would say that, yes, the higher education is worse because there's this ascension that can be natural that happens. And we don't do a good job historically in training people. We get them in there and we say, "Okay, go ahead Mm -hmm. um, and go. But my approach is you really have to make an investment because, for example, as an English teacher, if I taught English 100 or English 101, and the expectation because of the learning outcomes of the course is that you come into that course already know how to write know, understanding and you know and can demonstrate how to write an essay. I'm not going to assume that. I never did as a fac- as a teacher. Agreed. I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to take the first week and review what my expectations are about how an essay should look. It goes both ways. Yes, we shouldn't, there there, there should be, you shouldn't get to the point of a senior leadership position and not know certain things. But there's also the responsibility of the supervisor, the hiring supervisor, to help that person to onboard because even if they know everything or they have that experience, they don't have it in that Organization. Great point. And gosh, I
0: love this. And we could talk about this all day long because I think that we oftentimes don't make the investment because we believe that we don't have enough time. Um, I would say that some of us don't have the skill to be able to model it because of Mm -hmm. a lack of experience or Mm -hmm. a discomfort, or let's Mm -hmm. be honest, a fear of failure, right? We don't want to show our warts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I think that that when you do express that it is a priority, the return on the back end, and that that's uh, right, you save you save so much time and effort and drama, right. and energy, and and the cost of uh, hiring new talent and uh, the frustration of misdiagnosing a performance management problem because we consistently say, oh. Man, Dr. Beatty, it's definitively a will issue. Like, I mm-hmm. she, she got. I told her what the expectation was. Mm-hmm. She just didn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but we never took the time to really dig in to understand. Mm-hmm. She, she maybe said that she understood, but did she prove to you that she mm-hmm. could before you said, go get them? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, mm-hmm. goodness gracious, Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your experience in teaching and developing those skills. Before we do, the people want to know you referenced a legend. What's your favorite Denzel Washington movie?
1: Hmm. Uh, probably uh, where he was, was that called Gangster? When he was a gangster in New York and yeah, man, um, gangster. American yeah. Gangster. The, his, his line, and yeah, my man. <laughs> and Training Day? Uh, yeah, Training Day is a good one. But, uh, I, you know, the acting and the plot and, you know, I know it's probably not the most a glorious movie, you know, because of the plot and so forth. But the talent, I think that. Uh, but I, you know, he he's just he's just amazing. I mean, amazing. same walk, same talk, yeah. same. You know, I was looking at a show, a Soldier Story, uh, not too long ago, and saw that movie, and I said, boy, he was a boy, really young, back then, and still had that same walk, and. Same thing he does with his lips when he's, glory? I mean, he
0: glory. You remember Glory?
1: Yes. Yep. Same thing. Yep. Talking
0: Same about? thing. Same and the thing. reason why I bring him up specifically, first of all, you referenced him. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about ceiling breakers and when you talk about individuals just doing yep. the dang thing, I yep. mean, Denzel, if we just sit down, we could have hours and hours long conversations about the bangers that he's put out. I mean, like yep. Uh, I just watched Deja Vu the other night. I forgot that that movie even existed. Uh-huh. I, I was just completely, in, like, I'm, I'm like all in. I'm like, baby, I can't talk right now. I got to watch this. Denzel's on. But yep. uh, but I mean, I think that's the power of, of, of A, confidence in your skill set, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also B, I guarantee at one point in time, Denzel understood that he had to close the gap on something, right? He didn't get to that skill set to your point about, uh, are they born or are they made? It was a little of both. Uh, he's always uh, really wanted to stretch his ability as an actor and find these roles that both showcase his skill set, but mm-hmm. also stretch him as well. Something that you know all too well about. So, when we talk about stretching yourself, you're presented with an opportunity to. I thought I heard you say teach at a
1: penitentiary. Is that right? Oh yeah, I taught uh I taught for a couple of years and uh did great work at the um at the prison in Jessup, Maryland. I was uh while well, I was in Jessup and I was also at the uh prison in uh Ab is no, it Aberdeen? No, not Aberdeen, that's in Maryland. Uh, anyway, uh quite a ways away from um um from where I was living, I can't remember the name of that opinion. But in Jessup, it was a, a maximum, a maximum security uh, institution, and that was—I will admit—my most rewarding uh, and challenging. I don't want to say challenging; that's not the right word. The most rewarding. Um, Okay, I'm going to go with challenging teaching experience, and I say that because these guys were locked down 22 hours a day. Mm. So I couldn't just go and and just throw some stuff up up off the wall and you know teach it. They were studying. I mean, they studied all day long when they weren't in school, so they came prepared. Wow! So it really was. You know, I admired their uh, tenacity and how they appreciated and didn't take for granted the education opportunity that they had. Um, but it was really hard. It was uh, Jessup, Maryland. It was Baltimore. It was the height of this, was back in the early 90s, AIDS, and uh, that was rampant in uh, prisons. And that prison was probably 95% black. And, uh, you know, you have people. Leaving and going, committing a crime, and coming back to jail because there were better health benefits. It was it was difficult. You really have to have a heart of stone uh, to do that type of work, but it was rewarding at the same time. I remember um, the Valentine brothers. They were these twins that had, um, you know, like they were seventeen and had life plus natural, natural life plus 80 or something crazy Mm. like that. Um, But they scored the highest in the state on the GED test. I mean, they were just, you know, so anyway, it was, um, I, you know, but it got to a point where I just, it became a conflict for me as an African-American to see that it wasn't, it was, it was not um, rehabilitation. It was, you know, more, yeah, they had education, but the things when you're working in a prison that you uh experience that you see that you take for granted, you know, having a pen and things like that, it's it's uh it's a challenge. So after that I moved to um, Southern California.
0: So <laughs> the exact opposite. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, the experience with the Valentine brothers, I mean just hearing that on the surface, mm-hmm. uh it's, it's got me thinking that has to be one of the critical, I mean, experiences like that that drove you uh, to really pursue a lifetime career in higher education, thinking about these two young men that scored the highest score in the state on the GED, but here they are in uh-huh. prison for life plus uh, mm-hmm. Was that a byproduct of do you believe their environment? Like, do you feel as though when we go back to those four things that you referenced earlier, mm-hmm. like if presented with a different uh, experience in life, that maybe just maybe uh, potential would have been expanded? Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. I do. I really do. It's so sad. Yeah, it is.
0: Did you ever, when presented with that opportunity, were you ever fearful?
1: Presented with what
0: opportunity? The opportunity to to uh, to teach individuals in the prison system.
1: No, you know, I actually, I never was actually. Um, no, I wasn't. I, and again, I think it's because philosophically, at my oh, I just found the video. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're forty-five minutes in. She found I know, it. <laughs> I know. I know. I um, know. Yeah, I. Um, I. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I think because at my core, it's always been about, you know, serving the underserved access and equity and, you know, yeah. So I, I never, I, I was never afraid. I I can remember being in the classroom and it was a bad storm and the electricity went out, you know, mm. and I just was like, stay calm, everybody. Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's your inner dialogue coming yeah, out. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, was, it. Um, it was, it was, it was, but it was a very rewarding experience. Very I can imagine. Um,
0: and and, and life altering, I'm sure, you know, and yes. yes. establishing some of your own personal foundations or what we call mm-hmm. the F and fun. So mm-hmm. um, a couple more things that I want to talk to you about before I lead you to begin your weekend or rather wrap up all the emails that you have to work uh, mm-hmm. that you referenced before. Um, what's the earliest childhood education memory that you have? Like the first thing that comes to your mind, the earliest childhood education memory that you could recall?
1: Miss Goella, my second grade elementary school teacher at Kelly Elementary School in Pittsburgh. Um, second grade? The second grade. Yeah. I can still see her and see uh, what she, I should look her up and see if she's still, well, that would be a long time ago. Uh, Yeah, no. Uh, She, um, she was, I just remember her being a uh, nice lady and I remember Mr. Barrett, my fifth grade teacher, uh, that class, he was the disciplinarian and back then they would paddle, Uh, students, and the paddle had these air holes, uh, these holes in it. And I remember uh, somebody put a tack or something in his chair. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I had a good elementary school experience. Uh, I remember a lot of uh, elementary school, not much about middle school, uh, some of high school school but elementary school, for some reason, as you asked that question, was really special for me. Isn't that amazing
0: that like, we can't Mm -hmm. remember what we did yesterday, but here you are talking about the second grade. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And so many of, it goes back to what we talk about, what we're experiencing now has nothing to do with now and everything to uh, do with the events leading up to today. I mean, probably not news to you, Dr. Beatty, that I was the class clown. Uh, Oh, yeah. And I got into it. So my guy, Charlie Calvin Brown, C.C. Brown, mm-hmm. him and I, we would just always turn up in every class. And I remember Miss Kluge's English class. Uh, I know that that relates to you. Uh, mm-hmm. But C.C. Uh, sat right behind me. And so he was messing with me. And so, like, I, you know, we had those old metal desks. So I moved it up like three inches. So he'd stop messing mm-hmm. with me. And he'd move his up. Well, it's, it started to be less about him messing with me and more about me just creating the ridiculous distraction of noise. And it got to the point, Dr. Beatty, and I hope that you don't judge me as a result of this because I was probably twelve. Uh my chair was all the way past Miss Kluge's desk in the front of the room and Cece was right next <laughs> to me. And so oh, she said, You boys, go out to the, go out to the hallway. And we said, Both of us? And she said, Yes. So here we are on both sides of the door. And all she did was change the environment and wish we were turning up. I mean, now we're just loud and obnoxious in the hallway. So that lasted for about two and a half minutes before she sent us to uh, the the uh, principal's office. But, <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, it's those things that, that I remember that helped not only shape me and some of the life lessons learned, but also have a greater respect for uh, what educators do. So that kind of leads us into... One of the final things that I want to talk to you about in terms of higher education, I did go to a community college. I went to Johnson County Community College. Don't well, hold first- that against you. <laughs> 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 Listen, it was a perfect transition for me because I'm from a small town called Osawatomie, mm-hmm. and uh, I went from class sizes of uh, of 20 to 25 to this community college now of classes of you know 30 and 35. So it was perfect instead of going to KU, Mm -hmm. or whatever, and having Mm -hmm. 500 where nobody cared about me. So uh, I, for anybody that will listen, I consistently recommend trying out a community college if you're scared about the transition into higher education. So I admire that aspect of of what you guys do and getting people ready for whatever education they desire in life. My question to you is, there is a... There's a divide right now in our society that is really built on this premise of opinion and our own personal narrative. And as a result, it seems to me, um, and I could be way off based on my experience, it seems that civil discussion and showing a genuine interest in others and really understanding what makes people tick and their emotional connections and all that stuff. Is not a point of emphasis as much as uh, as it as it used to be potentially, what are we doing in the education system to teach real life behavioral skills that could help improve relationships and some of these society issues or societal issues?
1: Well, I think you know in the classroom uh, that faculty have a number of things that are embedded in as you may recall whether it's in a community college or at a uh, four year that teach you that you have to be responsible for your work, that you there's a responsibility attached to it. And I think that's a transferable skill if um, nurtured correctly or, you know, sometimes you might have to point that out. Yes. But I think that there are some habits that, Come along with uh, going to class, completing assignments, the neatness of your work, how you have to be organized—that transfer into being a um, responsible human being. Yes. Now, I mean, if you're, you're, if you're, I, I think that you're starting to see now more, maybe in charter school environments. I mean, there was this amazing school that changed my life. I went to a visit in virginia it was called the american dream school and they did a lot of they really focused on character development where they had them do handwriting no you know they don't teach handwriting yes anymore. that's what i'm talking about stuff yeah, like that yeah stuff like that how to write a note yes and not just say yeah <laughs> or yes, or you know, in a text emoji. message, yeah, yeah, or or the emoji and so forth. You know, Ellen had a show once. I record Ellen, and Ellen had a show once. It was hilarious, where <laughs> it was a uh, it was a phone book, and she gave it to. It was like a millennial that she had there, and she said, "Here, um, I want you to look up uh, radio." Uh, uh, what do you call it, a radiator, where I, how I can get my radiator fixed. And you should have seen how this girl was fumbling through this book. She said, oh, let me check here. Oh, no, let me check. Here. I mean, she couldn't figure out how to find it. And then she put, it was, this was the funniest part. She put in front of her a, a dial phone that, had, you know, where you used to put your finger in it and right. turn the dial. And she was like, what? I, she couldn't even figure out what to do with it. Mm. Well, the, and that's, that's the type of things, uh, or
0: the, the, that's the, the roadblock and the challenge that I see that is significant in our society right now is our inability to just form stronger connections. And I'll give you a very specific example. So, or leveraging the resources mm-hmm. that we have at our fingertips, uh, to your point of the, the old fashioned phone book mm-hmm. uh, or the rotary phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I had the opportunity to speak at Burns and Mac, uh, recently and, uh, um, you know, everybody's social distance, everybody's got their masks on. You can't see whether people are smiling or anything like that. And, uh, I get, I get the opportunity to meet some folks before and I, I meet probably eight or nine individuals and Dr. Beatty, I, uh, in the, I would say 45 seconds to two and a half minutes that I talked to every single one of them, I learned some pretty amazing things. Like. One young lady said her entrance music to anything that she would do if she had a song would be Under Pressure by Queen. Uh, Their CEO said, you know, one of the things that he does for fun is he goes to the lake every single weekend and he pushes himself to do 100 miles an hour on the boat every single weekend. Uh, I learned about Oko, who like loves hugs and he's known as a hugger and he's having significant withdrawals because he can't do that right now, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned these like facts about eight or nine people. And when I get up on stage and I do my thing, I, I reference them. And uh, the premise is we go about our day and we ask questions like, hey, how's it going? Or how's your day? And uh, many of you listening have heard me say this before. I saw this tweet recently, Dr. Beatty, that said, if anybody finds the right answer to how you doing today, please let me know. Uh, because you're just putting people in a position where they're thinking about all the crap that's not working. And and so when you like flip the script and you ask questions like, hey, what's your favorite Denzel movie or the fate of the world depends on you smashing this karaoke song, it puts people in a position to to get out of their head and focus Mm -hmm. them up, right? Here's my point. So I, I do this thing on stage and people inevitably always ask me, how do you remember so many people's names? How do you remember these facts about people? And my answer is always the same. Because these relationships matter to me. Like I am present in meeting people because it doesn't matter what education I have, the experience I've had in the corporate world, uh, or, or what I've gotten the opportunity to do in my speaking career, none of it would have happened if not for the relationships that have been created like you and I. So when I talk about how are we teaching these skills, like I hear your love for John C. Maxwell. Like, I wasn't taught the skills transfer process in college. I wasn't taught how to show a genuine interest in others in college. Like, I feel like we could make a killing in helping develop folks if that doesn't already exist in enhancing the social aspect of what we do in our society. Thoughts as I vomit all over you with information.
1: No, I, I I agree with you totally. This gets back to that disappearing and the things that have disappeared that have been that are fundamental to people growing and us becoming better citizens and our culture. People want things fast; they want it now. They don't want to work hard for it. I mean, there are a lot of things that you know, microwaves, remote controls that have fostered this idea, and that's probably the biggest thing I see. Especially in uh, work ethic, that people don't want to put in the work, and hard work pays off. And sometimes you're gonna have to do things that you might not might not be in your contract or in your schedule or in your plan to do, but it's what we have to do to get to the next thing, to get to the next level. And um, yeah.
0: Well, as we wrap up, I mean, I think that like one of the things that you're referencing is getting on a podcast with a dude that you've never met before on a Friday. So I want to say thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, The bar was raised or set very, very high from everything that I heard about you. uh, And you exceeded my expectations. So I appreciate you being lighthearted, vulnerable, transparent, and fun. Is there anything like if somebody wants to get to know you a little bit better, Uh, or uh, your organization, Metropolitan Community College, where do we go? What do we do?
1: You go to mcckc.edu. We enroll now. Um, You can go to take your transfer, the same classes you can take at UMKCKU. You can take at an affordable rate at MCC or get retrained, retooled, or take those personal development classes. And what people don't know about MCC is that we have what's called a corporate college where they can go out and customize training for small, medium, and large businesses. Hmm.
0: Look us up. I admire you so much uh, for obviously not just identifying opportunity gaps in your own life, stretching yourself to grow, but helping others do the same. So one of the things that we do here on the Fundamism Podcast is we showcase individuals that are living their fun and creating fun in the lives of others. And you know what's fun? Consistently finding ways to grow and get better. So maybe, just maybe, Metropolitan Community College is that for you. Uh, We'll have all the details in the show notes. So from the bottom of my heart, I wanna say thank you, Dr. Kimberly Beatty. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to the Fundamism Podcast listeners, Go out and have some fun today and create some fun in the lives of others. Until we see you again on the next one, deuces. Be safe, smile often, and have fun.